Matthew seven fifteen to 20. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Let's pray that prayer we pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. How many of you consider yourselves pretty good at reading people? You know what I mean. Some giggles in the front here. Okay. About half of you have what they call women's intuition, I guess, right? So that stands to, stands to reason. Some of you have this gift. I don't have that benefit, but I think I can read people pretty well. I like to think of it as the gift of discernment. I, I have a friend who once told me that sarcasm is discernment that hasn't been sanctified yet. So... If I have the gift of sarcasm, I like to think, you know, I'm, 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 I have a head start here in this department. But, you know, some people are harder to read than others, right? And I think we all have blind spots and prejudices that make it hard to read things perfectly, right? How many of you are Monty Python fans? Try a different tactic here. Okay, got a handful of you. Uh, it's okay, there's no shame. God forgives you. Um, if you're a fan at all, or even just a casual acquaintance with it, right, you, you must have seen Monty Python and the Holy Grail at some point. And, and even if you've not seen the whole movie, maybe you've seen the scene. There's a famous scene where they're, they're trying to ascertain whether a certain woman is a witch, right? <laughs> and it's fairly obvious she's been set up, right? They've put a false nose on her and, like, this get-up and everything else. And, but they eventually conclude the following, that we burn witches, right? Uh, and we also burn wood, therefore, witches are made of wood, and wood floats, and ducks also float, so therefore if she weighs the same as a duck, she's a witch, right? It's foolproof, really, and so they weigh her, and then they cheer, and they take her off to execute her, right? That scene is a, a wonderful demonstration of the danger of logical fallacies, because after all, it's ridiculous. Witches can fake their weight, you know? They should know that. Uh, but it also illustrates the difficulty, again, of, of reading people and telling things apart, I came across another example of this uh, this week, more child-friendly version. Uh, Gwen insisted that I read to her Dr. Seuss's Oh Say, Can You Say? It's one of those tongue-twister books designed to make Dad sound stupid. It works. Um, but in that book, there's one page about telling the difference between a clots and a glotz. These are two ridiculous Dr. Seuss creatures that are identical. But he says, well, one of them has spots and the other one has dots, and the dots and the spots are the same size. So as Dr. Seuss puts it, he says, first you have to spot who the one with the dots is, then it's easy to tell who the clots or the glots is. <laughs> Not terribly helpful. And I reflect on these things and think, you know, positive identification is a difficult art form, isn't it? And it can be also a matter of life and death, not just for witches, right? Uh, let's say you go out into the forest and you pick some mushrooms, right? And you have no idea what you're doing. You're just like, oh, this one looks pretty. And it reminds you of, like, you know, something in Mario Brothers. And you're like, yeah, I'll take this home and it'll give me powers or I don't know what, right? And you go home and you throw it right in a stew. 
Probably not the best idea, because the best case scenario is that you added a mild hint of flavor to your stew. The worst case scenario is that you get violently ill and you'll die, right? So it seems like the cost-benefit analysis would favor skipping it altogether and remembering that maybe all mushrooms should come in a can like God intended. (laughs) Jacob and I actually like mushroom hunting and all of that, but we're reluctant to eat them. You know, I think we've only eaten two varieties because they were obviously safe. But the key, of course, is positive identification, right? When in doubt, throw it out. You can take pictures if you want, but then let it go. And positive ID is crucial in law enforcement as well, right? You can't arrest everyone driving a white sedan just because some criminal somewhere did. You need to narrow it down and be certain to get the right man. And it's true in spy stories, right? I watch 24. I know what moles are capable of. You can't just trust anyone. And if you judge a book by its cover, I mean, you can kind of tell something about a book by its cover, but you can't do it in all instances, right? The point is this. Seeing beyond appearances is an important skill in life. And it's vitally important when your life is on the line, whether it's mushrooms, venomous snakes, spies, or false teachers in the church. This is a recurring theme in scripture that we should probably find unsettling. Uh, And that's the theme of false teachers, false prophets. And it's unsettling because it means that the gravest danger to God's people is not external. It comes from within. And it's amazing because we often feel, rightly I think, that we are surrounded by a culture that is hostile toward the faith and that the world is not friendly to the church. I wouldn't deny that. But Jesus says, and this is something that's echoed throughout the New Testament, that the thing we must be most wary of is not the world outside the church walls, but the internal threats. Uh, Maybe you remember the old Bud Ice commercials with the creepy penguin character. One of my favorites was when he was making repeated prank phone calls to a couple who were drinking Bud Ice and watching television, and he says, how's that Bud Ice? And then he starts singing Strangers in the Night by Frank Sinatra in this menacing tone, right? And the guy says to the wife, it's okay, the police are tracing the calls. And a second later, the cops call and say, those calls are coming from inside the house, you know, and they scream in panic, and it's like a horror movie, right? And it's silly. But it's a common horror story theme because it's so unsettling, right? Home is where you're supposed to feel safe. This is why the haunted house is a staple of amusement parks and even movies, because the contrast between the ultimate symbol of safety and life-threatening danger produces a pretty powerful reaction. This is also why home break-ins are so unsettling. Uh, We had several of those when we lived in Philly, and it it sort of destroys your, your sense of security. The safety of your home is supposed to be something fairly sacred, and it gets torn down. But Jesus repeatedly warns us, essentially, that we will face danger at home. The church is not immune from threats, and the worst things we deal with are not going to be explicit violent threats from the outside a lot of the time, but a more subtle threat from within. And it's not typically a violent threat. The concern is with false prophets, people who claim to speak for God but do not actually do so. This, this passage is the most serious warning we've received from Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount so far, and it probably surprised his, litner, his listeners, I would imagine, uh, because he just said in the last chapter that we should not worry, right? He commanded us not to be anxious. And then here he just throws this line out here about wolves here. 
He issues this very serious warning, and it's a command with this tone of danger lurking underneath. And it's kind of like the equivalent of telling your kids not to open the door to strangers when you're not home, right? This is a command given with gravity because there's a very serious threat. Life and death kind of matter. Look at what he says here again. Verse 15, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Now, it can be tempting to kind of almost tune this out because you've heard it so many times, wolf in sheep's clothing, right? It's a cliche at this point. Everyone in the culture uses it, but it's a disturbing image when you think about it. In the story of Little Red Riding Hood, right, the wolf dresses as the grandmother, and you can't help but think that Red Riding Hood must not have been the brightest kid. <laughs> because how do you have a full-length conversation with a wolf in a nightgown and not figure this out until, like, the tail end when he actually snaps at you, right? But a wolf, if a wolf was smart enough to actually dress like a sheep in a convincing way, that would have to kind of creep us out, wouldn't it? It shows a level of intelligence and planning. It's diabolically clever. And it's not like a cartoon where it's obvious that the wolf is faking it. It looks real. There's an intelligence implied by this image Jesus is using. It's sneaky. It's hard to see. And it's dangerous because it's not a question of subtle errors and little misunderstandings. Jesus isn't talking here about a a prophet who is simply immature or makes mistakes. He addresses that other places at times. But he's talking here about wolves. He says they're ravenous. They're out for blood. They're here for the explicit purpose of eating the faithful. And Jesus doesn't elaborate on this right here, but we all know that wolves are pack animals, right? They typically hunt in teams, so where you find one, there will probably be others. So the danger is is rather intense. Now we also realize that the wolf is just an image, right? This is a, a, a picture. He's, he's really talking about these false prophets. So wolf is his way of describing sort of the motivation and the danger, but the actual activity that he's worried about is false prophecy. Well, what does a prophet do? What's a prophet supposed to do? In our common use, we, we, we use this to refer to people who predict the future, right? But that's not the primary task of a biblical prophet. They do that as well. But a biblical prophet is defined as somebody who speaks for God. He speaks God's truth and God's very words into specific circumstances. So in a sense, it's actually closer to what preachers do on a Sunday morning, uh, though I do not believe the gift is limited to ordained clergy in that respect. Paul implies in 1 Corinthians and in Ephesians that many in the church have this gift. It's, it's no longer a particular office, I guess, as it was in the Old Testament. It's a gift more broadly given. Now, we may not have official titles in the PCA for prophets. We don't have that, but I, I believe we have people with prophetic gifts. But the one thing any prophet must do is he must speak God's truth. You don't speak for yourself. You have to be rooted in God's word. If a prophet speaks from God, a false prophet must speak from somewhere else. False prophets are by definition false teachers, but it's not just that they contradict God. The whole world does that. The difference is that they do so under the guise of speaking for God. They contradict God in God's name. They're wearing the uniform, but their allegiance is somewhere else. So this is the ultimate form of blasphemy. And what makes this dangerous is not just that they teach falsehoods and lies. It's that the lies have eternal consequences. If you 
So if you ever read James, James in chapter 3 of his epistle says that not many should aspire to be teachers, right? And why? Because teachers are going to be judged more strictly by God in the end. Why is that a problem? Because he says in the very next verse, he says, because we all stumble in many ways. So in other words, even good teachers, even the best of us screw up and teachers are going to get judged more strictly. So he says, yeah, don't be quick to rush into that job. Teaching God's word is inherently a risky business. And, you know, the author of Hebrews says the church leaders watch over the souls of the people and will have to give an account for those souls in the judgment. So teachers, in other words, those who exercise prophetic gifts in the church are taking heavy risks. And that's just the faithful teachers we're talking about, right? Jesus here is talking about hostile actors. If faithful teachers have the potential to hurt the flock, how much more dangerous are false teachers? False prophets are not a dormant threat. Jesus gave us warnings about throwing pearls to swine because they might attack you, but that kind of danger is reactive, right? Pigs will attack in response to you throwing pearls at them, right? So you can somewhat avoid the attack, right, by keeping the pearls to yourself. This danger is different. This is not a live and let live situation because in this case, the threat is on the move. You're being hunted and stalked and you're being, it's happening within, And I think it sheds some light on our passage last week because we talked about the wide path that leads to destruction, right? It's the narrow gate, the escape hatch that's small and hard to find. And and I said last week that the wide road to destruction represents what the world is doing. But I, I think when you read this, you realize that the reality is worse than that because it sure sounds like some of that wide road runs through the institutional church. If it's a 16-lane highway, a couple of those lanes are found within the walls here. There are false prophets, false teachers within the visible institutional church. Maybe that sounds alarmist. And maybe you're thinking that I'm overstating things, or that Jesus is. Maybe we're being melodramatic, but Jesus warns us that this would be so, and he does so on many occasions. If you turn to Matthew 24, you don't have to do that right now, but he talks again about false prophets and false Christs. He talked about it again and again, and it's not just Jesus. Paul, if you turn to Acts 20, uh, well, I have the wrong number here because I don't think there is an Acts 29, but somewhere late in the book here, uh, he does warn the Ephesian church that wolves will enter when he leaves, and that's one of his top concerns for them. He warns about the danger of false apostles and false brothers in 2 Corinthians 11. He repeats the warning in Galatians, uh, saying that false brothers will sneak into the church. And he ups the ante by warning his readers that even if an angel comes and preaches a different gospel, let that angel be accursed. In 2 Thessalonians, he warns against false signs and wonders that will lead to delusions. And in his letters to Timothy, a young pastor, he repeatedly warns him to resist false teachers. Peter, in his second epistle, makes similar warnings. He says that these false teachers are sneaky. They almost like climb in the window. And he says that these falsehoods are destructive and that they ultimately deny Jesus our master. The apostle John, in his first epistle, echoes the same warning about false teachers. He tells us to test the spirits and see if they're from God. Jude's short little letter, that entire letter is written as an appeal urging us to contend for the true Christian faith against false teachers. And Jesus himself reiterates the same warnings once again when he addresses his letters to the churches in opening chapters of Revelation. 
So the theme reverberates throughout the New Testament. It gets significant airtime, we might say. So clearly, this is a very real concern to our Lord and to all the apostles. This is not a red herring or fake news. The enemy is active, and he's already within the gates. So if that's the case, then it might be wise for us to heed the warning, right? Uh, The enemy would love for us to dismiss this warning, because if we don't believe he's active, it gives him a pretty free hand, doesn't it? It's kind of like that line in the movie The Usual Suspects. Kevin Spacey's character says, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. It's a great line because there's truth in it, especially in our post-enlightenment world. Many people don't believe in God, and even those who do pretty much ignore the fact that there's an enemy. And if you don't think there's a danger, you let your guard down. That's why the enemy is so subtle. And we've talked about this, but he is not stupid. He prowls around the church, not just among the heathens, So we need to start thinking about how to distinguish truth and fiction, don't we? How to tell false teachers from true ones. We better learn how to tell the difference between a klotz and a glotz. Because lives might depend on it. Okay. So how do we do that, you ask? Well, Jesus tells us how, doesn't he? He tells us exactly what to look for, and he uses this illustration of a fruit tree... He says, you will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So, every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Jesus is basically saying that we may not recognize the wolf at a glance. He doesn't tell us to look for the teeth or the darker fur underneath. It's not that obvious. It's not like Little Red Riding Hood, in other words, you know. The, the impression you get here is that the difference between true and false teachers is not like someone putting on a fake mustache or just faking an accent. The sheep costume might be pretty convincing. So Jesus says you have to examine the fruit. Jesus says a real pet peeve about trees that don't bear fruit. <laughs> He talks about it a lot, and at one point in a sort of climactic event, he actually curses a fig tree for not having figs when he wanted them and was hungry. I can relate to that. When we lived in Philly, uh, we had a small yard, but we planted tons of vegetables and herbs, and, and we had some success with some of it, but the main thing I was excited about, I planted an apple tree soon after we moved into that house. And we spent five years waiting for this apple tree to bear fruit. And when it wasn't really working well, we added a second apple tree to encourage cross-pollination. And then we moved away before I ever got to eat a single apple from my tree. It's very sad. I'm sure it's plenty fruitful now, but I didn't get to enjoy it. But so then we moved to Allentown, right? And now I have a yard that is all shade. And I like shade, but it has downsides. I am now the proud owner of three fruit trees, none of which bear fruit. My fig tree can't bear fruit because of the shade of the other trees, but we also have a weeping cherry and a flowering plum, neither of which bear any fruit by design. Now, I realize that the cherry and the plum are both marketed as flowering trees, right? And both of them give you very attractive flowers for about a week and a half in the spring, and that's great. But why do they even give them fruit names if they don't give fruit, right? I mean, like, we purposely bred these things to be useless, right? 
It's kind of stupid when you think about it. To the naked eye, they look like fruit trees. They even flower like fruit trees. But that's where the similarities end. Everything's just a tease. Then it's done for the season, right? And Jesus says that false teachers are kind of like that, but actually worse. My false fruit trees don't bear fruit, right? So whatever, no harm, no foul. Jesus says that a bad tree, in his analogy, actually produces bad fruit. It's not neutral. It actually causes damage. You don't get good fruit from bad trees. In fact, Jesus is kind of echoing a central theme of creation, right? Each tree, every living thing reproduces after its own kind, so a bad tree will not produce good fruit any more than a rose bush will produce grapes. And a good tree will not produce bad fruit any more than an apple tree will produce kale. Good trees will give good fruit, and bad trees will produce bad fruit. But I take something else from his analogy here, and that's that spotting false teachers takes time. Because the fruit doesn't necessarily happen right away. That's why I never got any apples from that tree, right? It can take years before a tree does much of anything. Likewise, you may not be able to recognize a false teacher right away. The enemy is subtle enough to hide falsehood behind just enough truth, and you may not see the damage until later. Because the best lies are not usually obvious. I may have told this story before, but when my older brother was a, was a kid, he, he went and wrote his name on the wall and crown, you know, complete with the backward letters and everything like that. And when my mother confronted him and said, did you do this? He said, no, Chrissy did it, my sister. That's not a very clever response, right? Uh, the best lies have a little more truth than that. It's, it's not so stupid as that. But our enemy is, in fact, clever in a way that we are not. And he has a tendency to hide his lies very well. And that introduces, I think, a whole new layer of complication to this thing. Because I'm not convinced that most wolves realize that they're wolves. I'm fairly certain that the wolf in sheep's clothing is convinced, in fact, that he is a sheep. I mean, think about it. Do you think that the Pharisees regarded themselves as false teachers? those conservative, law-abiding, pious, and respected guardians of truth? How about the scribes that Jesus warns us against, the great legal and biblical scholars of the day that he says devour widows' houses, stay away from them? I think the same is true today. Do you think that Joel Osteen considers himself a wolf? How about all the other health and wealth televangelists? What about the many pastors and theologians who preach a God who never judges and only wants to affirm you in your sinful lifestyle? Do they realize they're devouring the faithful? Or the nationalistic pastor who merges loyalty to God with loyalty to the country? Does he know that he is actually replacing Christ with an idol? That doesn't just happen in America, by the way. How about those who teach and preach the word of faith movement where you can name and claim specific blessings from God? Do they realize that ultimately they are crushing the faith of the poor and the suffering? You think of the syncretism of even the American church that often cloaks secular humanism in religious language and creates a religion of self. Do they know that they are destroying the hope of sinners? 
Some of them might be that cynical and corrupt. I don't think all of them are. I think many, if not most of them, are convinced that they're in the right, and so they poison the church, and then they sleep easy in their self-righteousness. They don't identify as wolves, and so they don't think they are wolves any more than my flowering plum knows how useless it is. That's how subtle the enemy is. His best agents don't even know they're being used. But we'll know them by their fruit. When I was at Westminster Seminary, I I arrived in the midst of a great upheaval in that institution because one particular professor had recently written a controversial book. Some said it was great and others said it was dangerous. A lot of people said he meant well and he had a lot of friends on the staff who kind of stood by him throughout the entire ordeal and there were a lot of tears shed by a lot of people including myself because it it created a schism. And ultimately he was fired and many other people left in his wake. Did he think he was a wolf? No. I dare say he still thinks he was in the right. But the fruit of his years at the seminary were tension, division, anger, and in some cases people found their very faith falling apart. Now I didn't understand all the debates, I'm not some great theologian, but that doesn't sound like good fruit to me. Jesus says that if we're paying attention, we will know them by their fruit. Now, if only we knew what fruit to look for. If only there was a list somewhere of fruits of some kind, spiritual fruits that we should be looking for, that people would exhibit if they were spiritual. Oh, wait, Ken, you were mentioning this morning, I think, something in Galatians 5? Two lists, actually, Paul gives us there. Paul says, Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. That's the short list. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. It's the wolves. But the fruit of the Spirit is this, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Beloved, you cannot long fake the fruit of the Spirit if you don't have the Spirit. If you watch long enough, you will know false teaching by the fruit that it produces. And the sooner you catch it, the better, because it needs to be uprooted or it will poison the church. Jesus closes this little lesson with these last couple of verses. 19 and 20, he says, Every tree that does not bear good fruit 
is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. So he repeats this assurance once again that we will indeed know false teachers by their fruit. But on one level, that almost doesn't seem good enough, does it? Because if, if bad fruit is already being produced, it feels like it's almost too late in a sense. The damage is already happening, right? And, and that means that the most we can do is to kind of stop it from getting worse. But while Jesus doesn't promise that we will be able to catch every false teacher early, he is promising in these verses that he will not tolerate it forever. Some false teachers won't be fully exposed until the judgment, but Jesus says you will know them by their fruit either now or in eternity. Any false teaching not dealt with in the here and now will be dealt with at the judgment, and that is the meaning of verse 19. Bad fruit has consequences now and in eternity. The destruction is the fruit. So, beloved, this is not a passage to be taken lightly. We must be on the lookout. And it's not enough to say, well, that would never happen here. We're pretty careful here at LVP. I think we are. But I'm pretty sure that every church that was ever built was pretty certain of that. And not all have remained faithful. And we are not better than our fathers. So we need to look for bad fruit. You need to be able to detect it. Even in me, if it comes across, you're supposed to be Bereans, right? Test my words against the scripture. Look for the bad fruit and nip it in the bud. And the fact is, we will recognize bad fruit only one way, and that's by studying God's word and by walking in the spirit so that we're bearing spiritual fruit. You can't know a counterfeit unless you knew the real thing. Bad fruit is most obvious when it's standing next to good fruit. It's the contrast that will make it clear. Otherwise, how would you know that a brown banana was going bad unless you had seen a perfect yellow banana? How would you know how bad kale was unless you had once eaten spinach? We need to know truth so that we can recognize falsehood. We need to know the word so that we recognize when people contradict it. And we need to walk by the spirit so that we recognize those who don't. And the better trained we are, the earlier we will recognize the blight when we see it, and the sooner we make that positive ID, the sooner we can nip it in the bud. But this is not a job for the timid and lazy. Jesus says a little while after the sermon in Matthew 10, he says, Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. You're called to be wise and innocent, intelligent and holy. We have studying to do. We've got to know the word. We've got to know people. But, beloved, this is not a call to witch hunts. This is not a rallying cry to you to go find any whiff of a hint of heresy and go beat people up for it. The main point of this passage, the main takeaway that I want you to see, is that Jesus is concerned with defending his flock. But he is the hero of the story, not you. Jesus says in John 10, in a very familiar passage, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay my life down for the sheep. 
Beloved, the gospel is that Jesus died to save his sheep because they are his. He is not about to let wolves, even clever wolves in disguise, take us down now. False teachers may have their time in the sun, but their day is coming. That's the promise here. Their rage we can endure, for lo, their doom is sure. So read your Bibles, walk in the Spirit, and bear spiritual fruit, and learn to recognize falsehood and have the courage to confront it. Learn to know the difference between the clots and the glots. We are obligated to do these things, but remember that Jesus is your ultimate defender. The threat implicit in verse 19 is a precious promise to God's people. If you belong to Christ and have trusted him to deliver you from your sin, then he will deliver you from the wolf also. So don't despair over the falsehoods. The church has faced this from the beginning, always has, always will, until Jesus returns. But the gospel we preach is that the good shepherd has already died for us. He is living for us and he is interceding on our behalf. So as Jesus says, beware, but take courage too because the battle belongs to him. Let's pray. Gracious God and Father, we thank you that Jesus is our good shepherd. We thank you that he knows his sheep. We thank you that his sheep know his voice, Lord. By knowing his voice, we should be able to recognize falsehood, Lord, but sometimes we're taken in, briefly. Lord, we do pray that you would give us clear eyes, Lord. Help us to know your truth and to know your word so well, to know your gospel so well, to embrace it so thoroughly, Lord, that even a hint of difference from it will be immediately recognizable. Lord, not so we can go on witch hunts and beat people up, but Lord, because the defense of your people is critical. Uplifting the faith in our brothers and sisters. Give us clear eyes, Lord. And we thank you that ultimately Jesus is our defender. We thank you that he is the hero and not us. To him alone be the glory. We ask these things in his name. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Please stand and join me in singing the doxology. Father, Son, and